Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. What has been up? Oh, I'm going to make some uh, chicken tikka masala tonight. Just got all the ingredients. I'm excited to finally just have a night where I'm like chilling and cooking because my mind definitely needs it. School is feeling um, oppressive. <laughs> I think is the best word. Have you made tikka masala before? Um, yeah, actually, it's been like my go-to dish. I'm, I tried to make tikka masala maybe six or seven times last year, and it was like fine, but it never tasted like good. And I found a great recipe for it. So I've just been cooking it a lot and just cooking a lot in general. And I haven't really spent <laughs> any money this week on food because um, I haven't had time to cook and like going out's been expensive. So it's just been all pasta. <laughs> So I'm excited for a non-pasta meal. I feel you. I've been chefing it up as well. Honestly, like I feel like because we're quarantined at school, cooking is the only thing that feels somewhat separate. And like I like use it to procrastinate, definitely. The other day I was cooking this tofu dish with Trader Joe's red curry sauce. And then like an hour later, one of my roommates came downstairs and she was like, you're still cooking. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> so yeah. I think like it would be really cool if one day we had a chef on. Um, I think that's like a whole other like artistic license thing that we could go for. Especially like shout out Virtue in Chicago. I know uh, the head chef there is black and absolutely killing it. So shout out to them. Shout out. well with that um very powerful and um excited shout out from Teresa we'll get into the show so I'm really excited for today's interview because we will be interviewing one of the subjects of one of my favorite documentaries of this year called The Painter and the Thief directed by Benjamin Ree and so today we are hashtag blessed to be interviewing Barbara Kisokova, who is the painter in The Painter and the Thief. And we're going to be interviewing her over a dirty chai. Great, let's get started. The reason that I chose Dirty Chai to introduce to the program today is first, it seems like we're running out of drinks. <laughs> it gets harder and harder to find a drink. Um, but there's a place near us that has a good Dirty Chai and it gives like all sorts of different types of energy. It's one of those drinks that tastes like really great and is always welcome to drink, but also gives you that like little shot of energy too. Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of chai usually because I feel like it's too sweet. I used to drink chai a lot in middle school. Me and my besties used to go to Starbucks after school every day and order the iced chai. I know, super embarrassing. So now whenever I think about chai, I think about that period in my life. But I actually really like this dirty chai. I got it from this place around the corner called Metro Coffee. And it's my favorite local coffee shop. Yeah, I feel like this is a good medium between coffee and chai. Yeah, not a whole lot I have to say about this drink. It's just one of those drinks that's solid, 
tastes good and gives me like what I need to get through the day. Even though now it's like 5.20, so I guess get through the evening. <laughs> Great, I have literally nothing else to say about this drink. <laughs> we like to Underwhelming. Keep it, we like to keep it real with you guys. We would never, you know, fake our emotions for the fans. So... <laughs> I give it a six out of ten. Yeah, above average, below good. That's how I would rate you as well. <laughs> Wait, is a six out of ten good or average? I feel like if someone told me I was a six out of ten, it would not be good. Yeah, but I'm saying like in general. So five out of ten is like technically average, but I feel like a six out of ten is actually average. I feel like it depends because like if you see like a movie is rated six out of 10, that's not that good at all. Versus I feel like if a music website rated something six out of 10, it feels better than if a movie was rated six out of 10. I mean, I don't like, I feel like if I rated something, like I never like in life, if I had to rank all of the things in my entire life, I wouldn't give that many ones or like twos, you know? Like my lowest would probably be three. You mean all, what do you mean all the things in your life? Like the albums I listen to on a daily basis. Oh. Just like, I like I don't think that there's that many things that are just like, like worth, like I feel like one is like worthless. You know what I'm saying? Have you watched The Hungry Games? <laughs> is that a one? Worthless, worthless film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you remembered it. That's how like rare ones are. Harvey Weinstein is a one out of ten. Zero. Zero out of ten. I mean, facts. Can't argue with that. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so anyways, moving on to good things. Today, super excited to be interviewing Barbara. She, okay, so essentially one of the best documentaries this year is called The Painter and the Thief. It's about a painter, Barbara, and two of her paintings are stolen by this dude named Bertil. And instead of being really angry at the person who stole both of her paintings, she became, she became friends with him. She literally became friends with him. She literally came up to him in court and was like, hello, can you tell me why you did what you did? And then asked to paint him. And this is a real story. Isn't that crazy? Like when this documentary was created, it wasn't like, oh, they are going to have this really great friendship and grow and learn as people together. No, this just happened. And that is crazy. Also, the film, the documentary was so well done. Fell in love with both of the characters and really just a wild, wild story to see. Yeah, as you can see, (laughs) I was really in love with this documentary (laughs) thanks for the summary (laughs) i think we all have a good idea of what the film's about now but um yeah i agree there's so many powerful moments in the story i really love this film as well and it felt a little bit intrusive in terms of a lot of the insights that we got into the characters themselves i feel like following anyone around for three years of their life you're gonna see a lot of sides of people which like are kind of stunning. It feels weird to be looking at some of these moments sometimes. And also a thing that we wanted to highlight is that Barbara is an incredible artist. 
So hopefully we'll get the chance to talk to her about some of her art in the incredible things that she does with um, her brush and her canvas. And with that, we're gonna call her up right now. How are you? How are you? I'm doing good, can you hear me? Yes, love the hat. (laughs) Thank you, it's the only one I have. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, thank you so much for um, coming onto this podcast. I know that I messaged you like a really long time ago and then I rethought about it and I was like, wait, (laughs) but yeah, basically we both thought the documentary was phenomenal and just crazy how it was all like real and it wasn't like scripted in any way was just crazy to both of us. And yeah, we just wanted to ask a few questions about like your art, um, what's changed since the movie essentially and like what you've been up to. Um, so yeah, sure. so yeah, I guess I'll start with the first question, which is what have you been up to since The Painter and the Thief came out? Has your life changed in a lot of ways? Has it stayed the same? So um, it's quite a simple question for me as a, as a painter. I still paint. And uh, as of course we all know, the corona time stroke quite hard, all of us. And uh, me and my boyfriend, we actually escaped to our um, farmhouse in the middle of a Swedish forest. That's where I am now, (laughs) where I also have a huge atelier. So we're basically having quite simple life where uh, my partner is writing a new book and I'm working on new paintings, which um, at that moment, actually, it's, uh, it's a new series of paintings that I'm working on and it's, uh, I don't know if I maybe should tell you a little bit about that. But you know, it's a, it's a project I started already one year ago, so, or one and a half year ago. And uh, it is called Manikarnika, which refers to one place in the city of Varanasi in India, where the Hindus go for uh, cremation after they, or where they are carried for cremation of the body when they die. So that's what I'm, uh, kind of surrounded by here in the middle of the forest, all these beautiful, colorful, so joyful pictures of, um, you know, what we might imagine like a cremation gut by the Ganga River, that it must be something dark or something that we don't want to see. But I have never had such colorful palette of, uh, of my paint than I have now. So it's very, very beautiful, vividly and very essential um, project I'm working on. But of course, uh, a lot of new paintings of Bertil is uh, gonna come as well, that's no question. That sounds beautiful. What drove you to choose Manikarnika as a topic? I remember when I first time saw a picture from this place, I was around 11 years old, and it was a movie by Ron Frick called uh, Baraka. I don't know if you might have heard of it. And there was a small sequence of, uh, of a shot from that place. And I had no idea what that was, but it really started to, to grow in my mind. And I started to be curious more and more. And thank God, a uh, few decades later, I was able to make my dream come true and went to India with my boyfriend and spent really amazing long time days and nights with uh, with the locals there because, you know, the fires burn 24 seven. And so I spent really beautiful time there with uh, 
so-called untouchables, if you might be familiar. It's supposedly the lowest caste, and that's the people that, or the men that care about, that take care that the corpse is properly burned. And of course, I, I totally respected that it's not allowed to take photos in this place because imagine crowds of Japanese and uh, Italian and whatever world tourists walking there with total lack of respect and take their selfies and pictures. But somehow, thank God, I managed to meet the right people. So I was allowed to, to collect, collect some insane images, which now I use as a good reference and inspiration. So in general, like where, where do you get inspiration from your art and style? It seems that a lot of times for your paintings, it's a very like immersive experience for you. It takes up like your whole body, mind, experience, everything. So why is that your particular style to like completely put yourself into your art or whatever you want to create? So first of all, let me note that painting is highly physical um, work. No, it's not the work, but painting as such, it's highly physical. Shall that be from you stretching your own canvas and preparing it? And if you have canvas of two and a half meters to, to one meter 80, it's quite the work. And of course, you have to be there. You have to put the colors on your palette. You have to lift the brush and you have to put the colors into the canvas. So that's the real kind of physicality of me when I create the work. Um, and you know, my main, my, my, my main themes have always been people. And so that brings another layer of physicality into the work. I love to sort of create the flesh and bones and to play with the skin colors on the canvases and what the lights and shadows do with it. But this is more of the kind of aesthetical description. But if we speak more of the, of the themes, I think I could just simply say it straight ahead. It's um, my certain curiosity about death, which I really, really am hungry to, to understand as much as a, as a human person possibly can. So yes, then I would say that um, my works are not sort of easy, easily digestible themes for most people. I totally accept it. But that goes hand in hand with my belief that art is not supposed to be just a decoration that should fit with the color of your sofa. Let me say it this way. I believe that art should try to get under your skin if you allow it to. And it should face you and me and all of us who, who witness this form of art, it should just make us uh, dare to, to face things that we might primarily rather keep like a dirt under the carpet. Shall that be our own mortality that our society quite daringly tends to deny? And I cannot really accept that, neither for you nor for me. You know, I want to understand the value of life through understanding the effect of death yeah that's really interesting and yeah we could definitely see that in all of your paintings <laughs> thank you take it as a compliment <laughs> <laughs> um i was wondering kind of not on that note but on the note of quarantine and painting during quarantine i know 
a lot of friends and me too. Um, during quarantine, we found a lot of time just to ourselves and like started doing a little bit of painting. Do you have any advice for anyone who started painting during quarantine or is just experimenting with it? Yes, do it, people. Come on, as long as it, I mean, if you find the joy in it, if you, if you find the concentration and you realize that you're, you're, you're getting sort of in, in touch with you, however cliche it sounds, but just do it. And, you know, there's also something beautiful. Um, it's uh, neurologically, it's proven that when you work with your hand, it sort of uh, triggers new or different parts of your brain or, you know, it's, um, it kind of enlarges uh, a mental capacity. So I highly recommend, shall that be painting or shall that be whatever you do manually or creative could also be, of course, writing. I mean, a lot of people, as you said, they definitely have found or they were forced to, let's say, be with themselves, which not anyone or everyone can handle. That's very much true. But there are some ways how we can try to cope with it. And that's exactly like learn how to be with yourself. And I think to do something creative, that's exactly the way how to do it. Because then you suddenly forget about yourself because you realize how little you matter or that you don't matter at all. It's actually, you're just really truly burning there for the work, you know, and that's such a relieving, relieving feeling. And specifically for painters, I can only say that uh, you have to fail many times. I mean, not even Da Vinci made Mona Lisa right away. You know, it, it uh, costs a lot of pain. It's, uh, it's a lot of suffering. Uh, but you need to want to improve and don't give up. Just go for it. You're going to fail with a lot of drawings and a lot of canvases will have to be thrown away. But that's the, that's the beauty as well. Don't give up. I also, like, I saw in the film, there's this one section where it seemed like you were struggling to, like, sell your art and stuff. And so since the film came out, have audiences that normally wouldn't be able to digest your art been interested in your work? Or how has that reception affected you as an artist? Mm -hmm. Nice and complex question. So, you know, I sort of hate it or hate to be sort of a cliche of a painter. Broke, uh, incapable to, to turn the work into some sort of money or even incapable to go out there to some opening and, and socialize. Uh, I've tried this for seven years when I lived in Berlin and you know Berlin is kind of a temple of art still so a lot of young artists go there so I understood how all these galleries and art market world functions or not functions so I, I got some basic rules but still I just could not really subscribe to it so yeah as a result you just broke because you rather choose to stay in your atelier and make new paintings um so one has to you know go with that i mean it's a certain sacrifice you you have to do of course you know when your budget is almost zero you have no regular income no idea when when your money situation will change um this is unfortunately or maybe fortunately hard to say it's part of the work um Meaning like then you, of course, you, not only that you can't go anywhere for holidays, you wouldn't go anyway because you need to paint. But it, it's really a lot of sacrifices here that for me never was a question. Um, I just was doing all I could in order to be able to paint. But of course, as you see in the movie, I 
wouldn't be able to do it without the very big help of my partner, of my boyfriend, who sort of said that um, he takes this as a form of investment because he very much believes and believed and still believes in my work. So I'm quite glad to say that his investment is now <laughs> slowly but surely um, coming to, to a nice profitable uh, action. So yes, that's true that after the film came out, first it was on Sundance there, it was the world premiere. I got a lot of compliments about my work, but you know, not much happened. But then uh, the movie got released on several online platforms in US. And I started to have avalanche of emails on, on my email account. And a lot of people were showing interest in my art. And surprisingly enough, the first painting I sold to America was a skull of a, of a moose. <laughs> you know? And the next painting was a painting of dead bird. And the next painting was a painting of a, of a foot of a dead person. So actually, I had to also reconsider my opinion about the so-called publicum. I mean, yes, people are able to, to think about death and they are willing to, to bring such commitment because when you buy a painting as a private person, you most likely put it somewhere in your apartment. You know, it's not like somewhere in the museum, so you see it once or twice in your lifetime. I mean, you put the painting into your house, into your home, and you live with it every day. And that's a serious big commitment, which always fascinates me that really there are people who want to live with a small part of my soul because let's face it each painting of mine does have little of course part of my soul and that's uh, that's such a magical magical thing for me and yeah what i've learned is is just brilliant that yes people are able to to deal with death more or less mm. yeah. yeah that's really interesting um and on the note of the film I know for me, even like with this podcast, when I hear my voice back, it's like, <laughs> and I was wondering, for you watching yourself on screen, was it a weird experience for the first time? Oh man, I mean, I think we're all the same. I mean, we all have our vanities. So first time I, first time I saw the film was not like completely done. There was no music, no post-production. And I watched it together with uh, my boyfriend. We watched it at home. So I was, you know, just sitting at the corner of the sofa, having a pillow, like sort of trying to, when I put the pillow over my eyes, I won't see it, meaning that nobody will see it. Oh my God, oh my God, so ashamed. That was really, really, it was not comfortable. And the next time I saw it, which was the only time and first time and only time I watched the whole movie with the whole um, finished thing. And that was in Sundance at the world premiere. And there suddenly I understood and realized that all these hundreds of people that sit in the cinema, they actually came voluntarily and pay, even paid their money for being there and watched the story of Bertil and me for almost two hours. And that suddenly made me feel so, not uncomfortable, but I suddenly felt very intensive responsibility for them and for all of it. In, despite I could not do anything anymore because the film was done. And so the movie started to unroll. And of course, I, I felt, I just felt with each second, I felt smaller and smaller. I just wished to be invisible and not to be there at all. And then I started to, to hear um, reaction of the audience, you know, like they were 
laughing or they were like uh, you could feel their their kind of tension like they really were there and they were obviously interested in what they've been hearing and seeing so far so i started to uh, accept a little bit that probably there is something uh, on the story that uh, the people can take from it and then the movie ended and uh, we got uh, standing ovations so you know that was something so insane and i remember the moment when the uh, the the product pro, the production lady was then asking me to come to the stage and there the people stood up again and gave me standing ovation so imagine for somebody who just came out of the small cave of my atelier you know this totally unknown person suddenly i have this one of the best film festivals audience just giving me standing ovations yeah. that was hard to not to get high on myself i have to admit <laughs> but i haven't watched the film in full length since then because i i truly i mean there are scenes where i just get so ashamed of me so many things uh, just sound quite dull like especially the scene where I am confronted with my boyfriend about certain moral issue, like when I'm making drawing of the Bertil's hand with the wound. And you know, I, I was saying quite a lot of quite intelligent things, but in the movie, there only stayed the scene where I'm saying that the only thing that matters is aesthetics. It has to be aesthetical. And this just came out so dull that, I mean, if I ever hear this scene again, I, I will have to dig myself a deep grave because it's just, Oh my God, doesn't mean I don't believe in aesthetics. I definitely believe in beauty and I believe that beauty transcends death, definitely. But it just came out dull in the film. Yeah, there are a few moments where I'm a little bit like, ah, I'm not really here now, can we move forward? <laughs> it's funny because the way that you're describing your experience, like being the subject of the film at Sundance, kind of like has parallels to the first time you showed Bertil the painting of himself in the film like that like overwhelming I feel like experience but like, that's interesting comparison though I think it's two different universes but yeah it's sort of there yeah we can maybe take it from the way that this could be kind of first time for me at that moment in Sundance where I truly felt to be seen as such in such insane scale Whereas Bertil, at the moment when he has his reaction to his portrait, is, as he told me later, was the first time he felt seen as such, you know. So, yeah, there is certain comparison possibly, but I wouldn't dare to compare that. But yeah, overwhelming emotions, that's for sure. But I wouldn't dare to compare this with Bertil's. I think he had to go through much more of a deeper inner um, process at that moment. I was just like, yeah, of course, you know, I'm the celebrity here. Give it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I cannot imagine. And like for, I think that there are so many powerful moments in the film. And for me, it was definitely the most cliche moment when like you first show Bertil, um the painting of him. But for you, watching the film or even experiencing the film what was the most powerful moment you think for you that was once more at the sundance uh premiere when also that was the first time i saw the film with the english subtitles at the sequences where it's only in norwegian 
and I just don't speak Norwegian, despite I've been living in Norway since almost six years. I just don't speak the language because I paint, I don't talk any language. So what was for me highly emotional moment that I wasn't ready for was when Bertil says um, that he knows that I see him, but do I know that he sees me too? And actually at that time, it, at the time, at that minute, at that second, in this seat at the Sundance Cinema, it really struck me a lot and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't stop my emotional reaction. It really touched me truly deeply uh, because, uh, yeah, he was right. I didn't know at that time that he saw me too. Yeah. I think that says a lot about Bertil. And um, now with a certain time uh, distance, I, of course, do recall that uh, it's true. He saw me too, or he has been seeing me as well. So like, yeah, what was the moment of your relationship or even when you first met him, did you realize that he, that there was something deeper between you two than just a person who stole your painting? I'm sure that we all are familiar with that. Sometimes it happens we meet the other person for the first time and there's some kind of chemistry there that you cannot really explain, definitely not predict. And that was the case for me. You know, when I entered the the courtroom, I was ready that I'm going to see the two thieves because that was the case. And what I saw there was one of the thieves. The other thief did not uh, show up at the trial. And I saw this guy with the sort of like a Viking style haircut and uh, with a nice ironed white shirt. Yet you could see his tattoos sneaking out of the sleeve into the hand. And I've always loved tattoos. So, you know, I. I started to be immediately like just beyond curious also to start to maybe make more of a sense about why happened what happened because I just still couldn't and still cannot really understand why anyone would decide to break a law in order to get my two huge paintings you know it just did not make sense back then, and still it doesn't make sense to me even today. I mean, I'm not uh, Edvard Munch that was stolen in Norway, you know. I'm not an artist that you can easily turn into money in the black art market. So I just foremost wanted to make a sense more out of what, what happened. So that's also why one of the first things I said to Bertil when I approached him was, please tell me why you did what you did. But along that already was very clear um, awareness of mine that I really, really want to know more about this person. And I knew already as I entered the trial, I knew that I want to make a portrait of the both of the thieves. And I wanted to recreate the, the crime scene when they were removing the canvases from the blind frames. You know, that was my kind of first plan. So I did have already the idea inside of me that I want to approach them and ask them to pose for me for that like majestic scene, how the two men are stealing my paintings. But this concept totally fell apart as I entered the, the courtroom. Because no matter how hard I tried, I just could not see the, the thief or the criminal in Bertil there. I really felt that his uh, sorry and his sorrow was so true 
and I just could not resist but believed him and I was sort of proven right. I mean, he's everything. He's also a criminal. Sure, he did what he did. But there are so many layers in this person. And uh, I'm glad I went for that. I'm glad I went to be curious about what is there more of Bertil to, to see. Yeah, and on that topic of forgiveness, I um, like kept thinking during the film how just this process of forgiveness and like gaining trust was a long process because in that first meeting you both said in the film that there was like you guys were keeping an eye on each other you know there wasn't immediate trust so could you talk a little bit about like building of, of course there was not immediate trust i mean we're not living in a hollywood movie we're living in life a real life you know and you probably have to be aware that there are good guys and there are bad guys uh, both women as well of course um, and you know, at the moment when that was probably two weeks later after the trial, when we agreed with Bertil to meet, and I actually understood, wait, wait, Barbara, are you really inviting the thief of your paintings into your atelier? Like, it, yes, you are doing that, but is that really as crazy as it sounds? You know, <laughs> when I was able to look at this whole beginning of the story from a different perspective than my own, I had to agree that this is rather insane. Um, but my gut feeling told me, yeah, just go for it, do it. I don't deny that I had a pepper spray hidden in my pocket. That's true. <laughs> I don't think I even said this to Bertil anytime later. <laughs> but. Um, I did not have to use the pepper spray at all. And yeah, as you say, so of course, like my mistrust is quite obvious or the reason why I should have mistrust um, or doubts is quite obvious. But from his side, I think it's much more, um, not necessarily interesting, but deeper. Uh, excuse me, I just light a cigarette. Thank you. Mm. And that's what I understood later that how much this, kind of this mistrust in people, how deep it goes in Bertil. At that very situation when he came with me to my studio, of course, just imagine to be in his shoes. You're the person who stole paintings of the person with whom you're now walking to her um, studio. And um, you sort of are supposed to try to give something back to her or it's like of course it's, it's so much confusement must have had happened in his head at that time um so i really tried to do all i could to make him feel as comfortable as possible to make him understand that i'm not here to i don't know to to, to squeeze anything i can from him and and throw him away like you know I knew or he knew that I want to paint him, which also means that I need to get his trust. I need to allow him to, or I need him to allow me to see him as he really is, which I did not have doubt that this will take a time, if ever will it happen. But so we then, you know, just started to talk in my studio and had a coffee and, um, I think he started to also, maybe more unconsciously, maybe more like intuitively, he started to understand that I'm not necessarily and primarily there to uh, misuse him for my gain. And that's how it started. 
And then I realized that actually this mistrust in people in general in Bertil comes from much deeper reason than just the fact that he was for the first time in the studio of a painter from whom he stole art. It just goes to the day one since he was born, you know. Those who were supposed to love him were not really there for him. Um, so many people just uh, just dropped him. So I think that's quite enough to, to build a serious uh, doubt about mankind, you know, as such. So that was also for me, I mean, I understood that quite soon. So even more, I said to myself that I want to prove him wrong, that there are people who actually can take him as much as possible as he is and not to kick him away, like to, to commit to a friendship with him. Um, it seems like that's what probably was needed. I mean, we all need it uh, every time. That's why we have friends. Uh, I mean, close friends. But for him, it was a. It took him a time to understand that there is somebody who um, can really be there for him as a as a person, as a friend. And he took a long time to accept it, <laughs> but he did at the end. I'm so happy for it. So, um, uh, how is Bertolt doing? Like, what is he up to? When was the last time you saw him in this Corona time? I have to, with the biggest pride, I have to say that Bertil is doing uh, like uh, never ever in his life, I would say. He's doing so good. He's now sober for almost two years. And when I say sober, meaning, of course, like no drugs, but also no alcohol, no smoking. He's a total healthy guy. And he's finishing his bachelor's studies in uh, sports and medicine. So he can, like when he's done, that means he can work with either uh, professional sport people, you know, to kind of provide them with the nutrition plan and so on. But also, and that is what his wish is, is to work actually with, uh, with the youth that has similar background like he does. So shall, shall I say like how to overcome certain issues that might lead to addictions of drug use to actually turn it to maybe some addiction into sports, which uh, works for him obviously very well. So not only that he's finishing the studies, but he's also dating a gorgeous woman, which is none of, none of them was in the movie. That's a totally different woman. Um, and he's, uh, he's rebuilding his own new home. So, you know, he's really as much with his feet on the ground as I have never experienced him. And I have a really big trust in, uh, in the power that he stays where he is now or that he'll only get um, stronger and better in what he's doing. And watching him going through this process and how much he has achieved just by his own hard, tough work. That's something I have never, never seen with anyone else. So man, this guy has such a, such a, such immense respect of mine. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. On that note of you guys' relationships, and we only have a couple more questions. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Oh. It's okay. I'm just in the middle of a forest. I have all the time <laughs> in the world, you know? <laughs> oh. But did the feel the sorry, did the film ever feel intrusive? Like did you ever feel like you had moments that you didn't really want captured on film? 
what is there not to capture? I'm just standing in my studio and paint. You know, if you feel like that's something interesting to film, be my guest, then film it. Okay, sure. <laughs> no, I did not have any of these moments, but not that I want to speak for Bertil here because I don't, but um, I think we all understand that he definitely did have such moments. He did not express it explicitly, but uh, I can only imagine that there were times when he really was close to say, I'm, I'm done, I can no longer do it. And uh, yeah, just beyond words happy that he did not say that, that he continued. And you know, now as we see this life journey, because the filming took three years, so we see three years of our lives and you see Bertil's roller coaster of up and down. Um, so I'm just so beyond happy to, to see that the up where we end in the film is actually the up where he is. And he allows the film to show to the publicum the nasty truth of drugs. Shall that be the scene where he goes to rehab? and buys heroin on the way. And then he's begging his girlfriend to give it to him. Which, I mean, this scene, for, for him to watch this scene today, I think it must be insane. And I understood that actually he tried to, or he was asking the director to not to use that scene in the movie, which of course the director would with no question respect. But then the next day, Bertel called the director again and said, no, you have to use that scene. It's actually very important to, to have people seeing the really nasty truth of drugs uh, when the party is over, you know, how it looks like, how nasty it is. So I understand that for Bertel, it's even harder to watch the film uh, now because he is really confronted with the... Uh, the very very dark part of him where he's hitting the total rock bottom but uh, his bravery is really big here so yeah this is more like of an abstract question but do you think that people should be filmed like suppose everyone has like three years of their life where someone is making a documentary of them right do you think that is healthy do you think that it is reflective or I don't know, like, you know, like what do you think about that concept of literally watching your life for three years? I think we are all doing that actually voluntarily and 24 seven with all the social media, we cannot allow to have our documentary being filmed, you know, of course it goes sort of selective. It's up to us what we post on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, I don't know any other social media than that. Um, so we sort of do want to be observed and we want to be seen. That's very human natural need. And we have the technical uh, possibilities for it. But of course it's something else uh, to post something on Facebook than to be followed by a camera, which is a third person. So also maybe we should not forget that the movie we saw, it's a documentary, of course. Everything that we see there has happened. But it's an interpretation of the, of the director as well, you know? I mean, he, he of course, uh, has his fingerprint in it as well, meaning he decides which scene what comes after what. And of course, there is certain chronology, but um, it's, let's say, the life of Bertil and me through the eyes of Benjamin, the director, you know? 
but the, your question basically about whether we all should have had our camera following us for some period of time uh, we are all different so we all of course would uh, take this uh, differently i truly believe that there are zillions of powerful stories happening and that's life and zillions of powerful stories that we would love to watch if there only was um, lucky enough that the documentary filmmaker would know about the story. And Bertel and I were lucky enough that Benjamin did get to know our story. So he started to film. I don't know. I, I think it's, I think for many people it's uh, better for their sake to maybe not to have a camera following them. It's, it's really tough. It's a tough thing. Yeah. And I don't think that everyone could really handle that. Despite that Benjamin was often in the position of the photographer and very sensitive and sensible person. But still, now with a certain time uh, distance, I can look back and, and actually understand that it was quite demanding. This, uh, it's not the pressure, but it's... Um, you know, though you, of course you are not acting to the camera, but there is some sort of always somewhere at the back of your head. There is the, the, the awareness that there is the camera around or, I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell. I just, I truly don't think it's for everyone. No, it can really mess up your life. And I'm sure there are stories of, of people who were documented and it did not do them much of good. I heard lately about the story it was a film that a documentary about the Berlin-based artist. Um, I don't know the name of it, of the film or not the artist, and but I know it was actually quite appreciated movie, even awarded at Berlinale at some some years back. And still, uh, the artist died in poverty, and I, I truly believe that there could have been some uh, influence of the movie, like it could really mess up your mind. So it's not for everyone, sure. Yeah, yeah, I totally believe that. Um, and then, last thing, like, I'm sure, like, we are both introduced for you, to you from the movie, um, and I think we both really fall in love with a lot of your art. I know you mentioned the one series that you're working on. Like, what should we look out for you, from you in the future? Well, look up for good art, guys. I mean, painters really need you. We, we need to bring our paintings to the world. We need the paintings to be seen by the world. You know, so just support your artists. That's all I want to say. And what you should look up for with me, well, you should, uh, I'm trying to update my website as often as possible. My website goes um, artbarbar.com because Barbar is my artist name because nobody ever was able to remember my full name. Now it's probably different, but I'm Barbar. Anyway, so artbarbar.com, there I'm putting my new works. So you're more than welcome to stop by there from time to time to see what I'm up for. But please guys, just, just support artists. We really need it. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting us interview you. So lively. Love the conversation. Also very just introspective. It's so interesting because like you're usually the painter in this situation. You're like one of the main subjects, you know, what an interesting dynamic. So, yeah, I'm very glad to be part of that series. Yeah. Thank you for your interest. I yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Good luck. Great. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Barbara and check out The Painter and the Thief as well as her art. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.